Today we open just by reading scripture right away. If you have a Bible or device, I would highly recommend turning to Exodus chapter 33 as we continue our series through the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 33. The Lord, that is Yahweh, said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. Start of Exodus chapter 33. Well, thank you so much for joining us wherever you are listening from, whether you're on a podcast or whether you are watching online. To summarize where we've been in the book of Exodus, Israel, the people of God, started in slavery in Egypt. They were rescued by God from Egypt. And then, just in the previous chapter, they themselves turned back to the worship of the false gods of Egypt. They built up a golden calf. And so God now, in response to them, is saying, I will let you go. I will do the things that I've said. I will let you enter what's called the promised land. I'll give you the space. I will defend Feed your enemies. You will have a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. Israel is given everything they want except for God. You even get to see this in the first verse when God says to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. Earlier, for example, in Exodus chapter 20, God says, you are the people whom I have brought up out of Egypt, but he has no desire to be identified with these people anymore. They are too sinful, too wicked. They reject and rebel against him, even though he is the one who rescued them. Well, how do the people respond? In verse 4, it says they see this as a disastrous word. Think about this. Israel has just heard they get the land they want, their enemies are defeated, and they will live in prosperity. They get everything they want, but not God, and they consider it a disaster. I have an equation on the screen for you for what that looks like. Everything minus God equals disaster, according to Israel. Not sure if that'd be the case today. Everything minus God kind of sounds like the Canadian dream. You get the land that you want, the house that you want, the stuff that you want, your enemies are defeated, you kind of live in prosperity and you don't have to deal with this God thing. Canada seems to me to be built on the foundation of saying we want to get everything we want and maybe we'll sprinkle on, on some of this God stuff, maybe some sort of religious stuff on top, but certainly it's not going to be the center of life. Israel sees it as a disaster. To have everything and not God, disaster. 
I think the disaster for many of us today would actually be to say, like, you can have God, but you're going to have absolutely nothing else. You're not going to have the job you want. You're not going to have the marriage you desire. You're not going to have the stuff or the wealth or the income, the safety, but you're going to have God. That sounds like the disaster zone. So how did this get so flipped? Well, one of the things at the very least, very least that I just want to acknowledge is that even if this is the Canadian dream that we're living, which by the way, we are in like one of the wealthiest times and nations in human history, I still think you get to see the fact that this is a disaster zone of sorts. Yes, we are wealthy. If you are listening to this, however, you are in one of the, you are one of the wealthiest people in the world. Your ability to pull this up on your phone or your TV or your laptop puts you in a very exclusive group of people. You probably, this is not always going to be the case, but you probably are not concerned about what you're going to eat today or later this week. You have mostly what you need. And yet still, for Canadians and for the Western world, the wealthy Western world in general, we are marked by some other struggles. Sure, we're wealthy. Sure, we're prosperous. We're also a deeply angry people, frustrated, frustrated by government policies, by religious fanatics, by um, our friends or neighbors who disagree with us, frustrated in traffic. You want to see an angry group of people just drive in a traffic jam. We are an anxious people. We are a scared people, a people living in fear and in this crippling type of anxiety. We are a sad and depressed people. These statistics, you can look at any type of psychological forum and find out the harrowing statistics in terms of human psychological well-being today. We are also in some ways a hopeless people. I see this not just, certainly it's true for those who lack ultimate faith of life after death, but I also see this in a lack of willingness to have children among people. And the reason uh, being, I've heard this, this isn't everybody's story, but I've heard a resounding story again and again that people don't want to have kids because they don't want to raise kids in this day and age. They don't want to set kids off into this. There are pieces about society, for however wealthy we are, that we just kind of feel something is like innately wrong. We are living in what Israel anticipated as the disaster zone. You got technically everything you could need, but you lack God and you sense the disaster. The question throughout the rest of Exodus 33 is to discover what are we supposed to do next? When we find ourselves in this quote-unquote disaster zone, what do we do? Read with me in Exodus chapter 33, starting at verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. What do you do when you find yourself in this place where it seems like you have everything but you lack God himself? Apparently step number one, take off the ornaments. Take off the ornaments. What does that mean? 
This is kind of the first instance of what in later Israel history is going to be known as something like sackcloth and ashes. So sackcloth and ashes, you can read about this in the book of Job and the story of David and other leaders, is a moment where someone all of a sudden, out of a great moment of revelation of God, they tear their clothes. I, we were talking in our message planning meeting before this about whether or not I should, as an act of illustration, actually demonstrate tearing my clothes. But, you know, I just don't want to show off those chiseled abs that I got underneath here. So I decided to keep it on for you today. Uh, You would tear your clothes, you would wear and wrap yourself in sackcloth, and you'd even put ashes on your face, head, and across your body. And it was an act of like humility, desperation. It was an act ultimately of saying, I'm separating myself from the desire to be looking good before others. What we see here in God telling Israel to take off the ornaments seems like one of the first instances of that type of visible representation of humility. I think that you get to see this uh, today in our desire to be put together. Like God is telling Israel, resist your desire to be like looking good among one another. And like this is pretty common today. Social media has definitely taught us about image management, but like I, I think back to middle school when I'm going through the mall, like shopping back to school clothes, and I just like, I, I told my mom, I was like, I need a West 49 t-shirt. Like I need, I need the label on my shirt. And my mom's looking around like, it's like four times as much as like any other shirt. I, I don't care. Like I need this West 49 shirt. I need to look good. I need to go back to school. And it's so funny because if you know me from that era, I mean, I was like a frumpy wearing like sweatpants kind of guy. So I didn't know what I was wearing, but West 49, I thought was cool. We have like, depending on your area of life. We all have our own little things. You might have like the car that you need to wash every single week to look particularly nice. You might have like the perfect Instagram grid that has to all be organized, neat and tidy. I heard someone talk about the, this is someone else's words, I'm blame shifting. Uh, Someone talk about the MEI mom stereotype in Abbotsford that has like the hair in the bun, the big sunglasses, the Lululemon, the like driving their forerunner, their Tesla around. Like you got, you got the image. And of course it's like easy, easy to push it off onto somebody else. But as soon as somebody says to me, like, I've gotten into disc golf, and as soon as they start talking about, like, the nice little disc golf bag that you need, or all the all the different discs that you got to get along, like, it's not just Frisbee, you got to have a disc that does this thing. Like, everyone has their particular image that they want to portray. What God's saying is, take off those images. Take off the ornaments. But he's also saying one step further. See, this is not only about the way that we view ourselves among one another, the way that we try and position ourselves to look good. Notice where these ornaments come from. Back in Exodus chapter 12, we read this. This is that moment that I mentioned earlier where Israel has been rescued from slavery in Egypt. Exodus chapter 12, verse 35 and 36. The people of Israel also had done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. They'd asked them for the ornaments. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. So they receive in this act of deliverance, they plunder the Egyptians and then they receive the ornaments. But look what they do with it in Exodus chapter 32. Chapter 32, verses 2 and 4. So Aaron said to them, 
This is saying to the Israelites, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. These ornaments, this gold, this silver, silver, this fabric that had been used as a moment of marking God's deliverance, marking God's gift, actually got twisted and saying, we are now going to worship someone besides you, besides Yahweh, the God of Israel. When God's telling them to take off the ornaments, not only is it about like, don't worry about your image management among one another, he's saying, listen, these things have caused you to sin against me. Sin being that rejection of God himself. He's saying, take off the ornaments. Note this. He's not just saying, stop sinning. He's not just saying, don't worship that golden calf that you just made. Israel had already done that. Moses, Moses burnt it to a pulp. He dissolved it in water and he made them drink it. It is, in fact, the very first instance of a decaffeinated beverage. The calf burnt to a crisp in the water, caffeinated. Anyways, you get my point. The sin is gone. What God's asking for is one step further. Take off the ornaments. The very thing that even tempts you to sin, take it off. Don't just stop being angry, turn off the news channel, or stop following the influencer that actually causes you to step into outrage. Don't just stop being jealous. Avoid looking at all of the different things on your, on your phone, scrolling through all the different things that you wish you could have. Don't just... Um, Avoid gossiping. Remove yourself from the situations where you tend towards gossip. Don't just stop looking at pornography. Remove yourself from the temptation of being alone with your device in your room and actually like scrolling through it. Don't just stop sinning. Remove yourself from the situations where it could happen. Take off the ornaments. This is the first step that God invites his people into if they want to avoid the disaster zone, the place where you could have everything else but you lack God himself. Here's how serious it is. The very first, who's called the father of all monks in like the late third, fourth century, his name's Anthony, Anthony the Great. He's the very first monk who went into the wilderness to isolate himself from the pleasures of the world. He took off the ornaments. And here's what he has to say. This is the great work of a man, always to take the blame for his own sins before God and to expect temptation to his last breath. You take off the ornaments. You remove yourself from the sin and temptation. You say, God, I want you alone. And you find yourself in this interesting space. I don't know if you notice this, but in verse 5, in the same place that it says, take off your ornaments, directly afterwards, God says that I may know what to do with you. That there's this gap that opens as the people take off their ornaments and separate themselves from the objects of their sin. There's this moment of God actually saying, there's a space where I'm going to determine what to do with you next. And here's where we see the next step. Read with me Exodus chapter 33, verse 7. 
Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called to the tent of meeting. He called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, that is the thing that represents God's presence, would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord, that is Yahweh, would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses would, would turn again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. You see here that after taking off the ornaments and as God creates this space of discerning what is next, Moses comes in and he speaks to God face to face. This is, in fact, the second step on the list if you want to get out of the disaster zone. Step one is take off the ornaments. Step two, get face to face. Now, just a point of clarification, it might be strange language to say that God takes a moment to discern, to kind of decide what to do next. From the vantage point of heaven, like God is outside of time. He created time. He is the one who sees all things present, past, and future in the exact same moment. So does God change his mind or wait to see what to do? From the vantage point of heaven, it's a little bit challenging to speak that way. From the vantage point of humanity, though, from, from our vantage point, this is how the story goes. There's this space that's opened up that Moses steps into. Scholars would actually say that without the prayers of Moses, Israel wouldn't have had a chance. That God actually waits and sees how Moses prays and in the human vantage point responds. And he does so from a tent of meeting. This is the place where Moses goes, a physical, specific location to pray. Sometimes we have resistance to that nowadays. I think it's because of what's called the sacred-secular divide. It kind of started uh, around 500 years ago. A guy named Martin Luther really importantly noticed how uh, churches and pastors and priests had kind of created this like isolated hierarchy where these were the important things. And things like mowing your lawn or changing a diaper or swinging a hammer were less important works. And Martin Luther responds to that and says, God's created all things and all these things are intended to be worship. The desire was for these sacred and secular things to actually see the secular things be lifted up into the realm of the sacred. And we believe in this as a church. We talk about the 168 where not only the one hour of the week is devoted to God, but all 168 hours of the week are devoted to God, but I think what's happened in our day is rather than the secular being lifted up, I think the sacred has been dropped down. It's been flattened. I think you see this in a few different ways. You see pastors who, rather than saying like, my life, I'm, I, everything I do, I just want it to be so representative of being devoted to God. It's like, no, we're gonna be casual. In preaching the word of God, we're gonna wear like a plain white t-shirt or something and just show that I'm like, like every other person. And I do this obviously kind of tongue in cheek. Like I do believe in the importance of that, but you also see this in architecture. You see this in the way that old churches would have had these great grand like murals depicting the story of God. They have these 
beautiful windows and sculptures, and your eyes are just like turned towards heaven. You see God in the architecture, not that you worship it, but it just helps you picture heaven. Our buildings today are designed to be just like any other building. They fit in with the landscape. You don't step in and all of a sudden be struck by, wow, I'm like, I'm just in a different type of world. You're just struck by the average white t-shirt type of place. And this is fine in many ways, but I think what we lack nowadays is just specific locations that are dedicated to seeking God face to face. I actually think we need these types of places. I think we need bedrooms that have like closets that you go to pray. I think we need particular like walks that each of us go on that we know as soon as we walk down this way, it's gonna be like prayer central with God, a park bench, something, a church building that's designed for us to just say, this is a place where I can meet God. In a world that's resisting him, I know this location is dedicated to God. We need those tents of meeting today. What's fascinating is that this tent of meeting is actually language that's going to be used later on for a larger, likely, tent of meeting, a specific, like, design where the presence of God can be with his people. But Moses has this, like, smaller little tent of meeting. And it's one of the ways that Moses actually steps into what, what's being called a forerunner for Israel. And here's what I mean. Israel's great deliverance moment is that they were running away from Egypt. The armies of Egypt were crashing down upon them, and they're at this water. It separates. They go through. They're rescued from death to life, and they're saved on the other side. Moses' life begins by his mom, at the threat of the death of Moses, putting him into a basket, sending him into waters, and then on the other side, the daughter of the king of Egypt rescues him. He pictures it. Before Israel is wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, Moses wanders the wilderness, escapes from Egypt on his own. For 40 years, wanders the wilderness. Before Israel at Mount Sinai has this beautiful revelation with God, Moses comes to the burning bush at the mountain of God and encounters him. Moses is actually this forerunner, and here where he's a forerunner is in this tent of meeting this space where he will speak to God face to face. What the people want, I don't know if you saw this, in verse seven, everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp, and then note this, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into his tent. Verse 10, then when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. I don't, even, I don't know if you noticed this. They see and they watch and they are like fixated on Moses speaking to God face to face, but they are stuck at their own tent doors and just worshiping. Israel has the excuse of the fact that Moses goes out there because God has just said, I cannot dwell with these this people. I'm going to consume them. They are stiff-necked. They are cut off from my sight. So Moses has to leave the, the camp in order to be with God, and they stand there and they worship. Israel has an excuse. I just don't know what ours is anymore. Israel will stand in worship, but not speak to God face to face, because they don't have access to him. For us on the other side, where Jesus is our forerunner, where Jesus lived the perfect life, 
where Jesus showed us how to live and then died the death that we deserve to live, and then in so doing, ended that separation from God, and then was resurrected. For those of us who's true, and that's for anybody who believes in Jesus, why are we still the ones who stand on the sidelines and do not go to speak to God face to face? Why am I still like Israel and that I'm satisfied with this like safe pocket of worship, which is beautiful, but I won't step into speaking to God face to face? We settle for the spiritual mediocrity. Uh, skip the dishes kind of spirituality where we want things cheap, fast, and with as little action from us as possible. We don't want to step out and do what Moses is doing. We want to get some sort of like quick hit, open the Bible, some random place, get access to God. We want a quick little prayer and then he's going to answer it. We don't actually want to be the ones who speak to God face to face. One of my prayers recently is that I would speak more with God than I speak about him. That I wouldn't just be caught up in talking about the things that I'm learning in scripture, both as a pastor, like in front of people, but also just in conversations. That I wouldn't speak more about him than I actually spend time speaking with him. Face to face with a friend in a way that even Moses couldn't picture because Moses did not know the work of Jesus yet. I want to speak with God more than I speak about him. So what do you do in that space then? When you speak face to face to God, what do you do? I want to read in Exodus chapter 33, starting at verse 12. And I just want to make some observations. Moses, I think, is in a moment of like panic, fear. It's kind of like a convoluted prayer. I think that's part of the design. But I want to read it, multiple prayers, and then make some observations, starting at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of this earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Here are some of the observations that I make. First one, prayer is the center of this story. We know this story if you've grown up in the church, which it's fine if you haven't. We are so happy that you're here regardless of where you're coming from. But the more common parts of this story are like the golden calf moment where Israel rebels against God and builds this golden calf. The actual bulk of the story is dedicated to Moses' prayers. And what happens in them? Well, first thing that we see, Moses feels alone. He feels isolated and lonely. He says in verse 12, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you haven't let me know who you'll send with me. I'm supposed to do this task my own. He feels the loneliness and the isolation. I think you also see, as I mentioned, like his exhaustion and his fatigue. There's this convoluted prayer that like sometimes it doesn't even make sense what he's asking. There's like this panic within him. I think you see also the desire for Moses to do what's right. I almost use like the word striving. Uh, he says in verse 13, If I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways 
that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. He's like confused. Like, I think I found favor, but I just want to like keep pushing through. I got to make sure I have favor in your sight. And then there's like this somewhat almost struggling with his identity. I would even call it a certain type of insecurity. He says in verse 15, if your presence won't go with me, don't bring us up from here. How shall it be known that I've found favor in your sight? I and your people, isn't it in going with us so that we are distinct? Moses recognizes that like he and his people's identity is wrapped up in the presence of God with them. Who are they supposed to be? Notice how God responds to each of these requests. When Moses says that he is alone, that he's not sure how to do this, God's first response in verse 14 is this, my presence will go with you. When Moses says that he's exhausted, when he's just like this panic convoluted thing, God says, even when Moses doesn't explicitly say it, his response is, I will give you rest. I know how weary and exhausted you are. I will give you rest. When Moses is worried about whether or not like he's doing enough, he's like, I got to find the pathway. God says in verse 17, you found favor in my sight. Moses already know this. You have found favor in my sight. And when Moses is worried about his identity, feels the insecurity of like, I don't know who I am. I don't know who we're supposed to be if you aren't with you, or if we aren't here. God says, I know you by name. He speaks to his fatigue. He speaks to his insecurity. He speaks to his isolation and loneliness. He speaks to the desire to be like with God, to have a sense of purpose. He speaks directly to him. And after God speaks exactly what Moses needs, we get to the prayer, I think, that unleashed the greatest revelation of God for like centuries and centuries. We'll talk more about this next week, but Exodus 34 is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. In other words, the authors of Scripture refer to this again and again because it is such a profound moment. And here's the prayer that Moses prays in order to get to that moment. After all these other longings have been addressed, he comes to this point, this deep prayer. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Please. Show me your glory. This word glory is a word of weight and of presence, significance. On a more humorous level, my wife has been obsessed with the Taylor Swift concerts that are going on, the tour. And there's a sense of like, why would you want to pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars in order to go see this tour, this concert? What is it about it? But the answer is kind of like wanting to see Taylor Swift in all of her glory, all of her musical talent, her songwriting talent, her performing talent. You want to see all of it. When Moses says, please show me your glory, he's saying, God, I want to see you at your greatest. I don't want to see a lesser version of you. I don't want to see some sort of spiritually mediocre side of me just like resisting the grandness of your vision. I want all of you. I want the fullness of you. I don't want anything less. Please show me your glory. Here's what Moses does. 
if the first step in getting out of the disaster zone is to take off the ornaments, if the second step is to get face to face, the third and the final step is simply this, pray what you know. Pray what you know. Moses is not praying with intellectual mastery. Moses knows less about God than you do. If this is your first time ever listening to a sermon, let, you, let me get you to the place where you know more about God than Moses. God himself saw that human, humanity was in such a desperate need of rescue that he sent his son to actually become human. That a man named Jesus was the son of God who walked through the streets of Jerusalem, who breathed the air of Judea, who lived this perfect life and then died and was resurrected on the third day. You now, more, you now know more about God than Moses himself. That didn't matter. Moses simply prayed what he knew. He knew he needed to be with God. He knew that's what defined the people. He knew he was exhausted. He just simply took the circumstances of his life and the little bit that he knew about God and he prayed it and it transformed the world. That's what we need to do in this season. Take off the ornaments, separate ourselves from the objects of sin, consistently find like a tent of meeting type of place where we can speak face to face with God and then pray what you know. If you long for the presence of God, pray it. If you long for comfort, pray it. If you long for healing, pray it. This is the space where God works. Let's pray and then step out of here. Father, we love you. Thank you so much that you are the God who meets us where we are, that you are the God who is with us and gives us rest, that you are the God who knows us that you are the God, as we pursue Jesus and seek to be like him, that we find favor in your sight. As we have faith in Jesus, we find favor in your sight. Teach us to pray what we know. And Lord, we just simply ask, please show us your glory.